Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and on a special episode of the podcast today, we talk to three figures from the world of retail to discuss the quiet revolution taking place on our streets. Ross Bailey is the founder of Appear Here, the venue marketplace for shops, pop-ups, and just about anything else. Luca Falloni, of course, is the founder of the beautiful Italian outfitter that shares his name. And Archie Hewlett is the founder of the wonderful London footwear label, Duke and Dexter. It's a fascinating conversation with three entrepreneurs who live and breathe these issues every day. And they tell us how our high streets might look in the near future, why certain brands have ridden out the storm and others have sunk, the shopping gimmicks that they're tired of seeing, and why, in fact, we might want to cancel the word retail altogether. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels, not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on a special edition, I suppose, of the Gentleman's Journal podcast to talk about retail at a time when retail is just reopening in this country, at least. Um, And you three, hopefully, are very, very well placed to talk to us about that. But I wanted to talk to you all first about the kind of more poignant moments of the last year, um, as you have all kind of walked around the various ghost towns of our city centres and whether this year has changed the way you think about shops and about retail space in general. If you can get that emotional about it, I hope you can. Who wants to kick us off? Ross. <laughs> Over to you. So the view of how we think it's opening so far. Yeah, I guess just like how you felt over the past year, how your kind of attitude to retail in general has changed. Well, I think it's funny, right? At the beginning when all of this was first happening, and I don't know about other people, but I was sat there you know, watching a Netflix show and you'd watch two people touch a door handle and get anxiety, let alone the idea of like being in the same room as other human beings. And I think that, you know, at the very beginning of this pandemic, about a year ago, when we were at the height, you were sort of thinking, could you even imagine sitting in a theatre with hundreds of people again? And this idea that humans could be carrying around this deadly virus and how would it change us from a humanity perspective? And I think what's really interesting is time goes on, you realise that as humans, we don't really change. And that I think now a year on, I can't wait to you know, be in a room full of people, sweaty people in a nightclub. I don't know, like, you know, you sort of go all the way back. And, um, and I think that that makes me optimistic. I think that what we have seen during COVID is a real acceleration of all the things we were already seeing happen right before that. So even when you think about the little neighborhoods around the periphery of cities, they were beginning to really thrive for about two years or so from our data prior to this. And um, what we were also seeing was things like the big mass retail, mm. you know, stores that were about buying as much as possible already declining. We saw, you know, Debenhams, Arcadia, all those brands going into CVA in 2019. So I don't think any of that stuff is a big surprise. Yeah. But I think that what, what it has done is accelerate and what it has done is fast forwarded the things that were already underway. And I think that, in many ways, I think COVID is a little bit like how people talk about in the travel industry, what happened during September the 11th. And there was this moment where everyone was like, no one will ever get on a plane again. No one will travel again. Yeah. Um, it was terrified of like what would happen. And then, you know, the 15 years post that more people traveled than ever before. But what has happened is every time we go on a plane, you have to put your liquids in a bottle that's less than 100 milliliters. Mm. And I think that there'll be little tiny bits of friction like that. 
that fundamentally don't change the way that we shop or the way that we experience or the way that we connect. But there will be tiny little things which will be forgettable of when yeah. they even started a bit like when you um, queue up to an aeroplane. Luca, how, how was it on the first day back open when that first customer walked into your shop? Were you there to greet them with open arms? <laughs> um, I went back to the stores to see what was going on on, on the weekend. So uh, finally, uh, retailers uh, started again really, really strong. Uh, let's see if you stick that way. But um, we have always believed that uh, the future of retail, it's uh, direct to consumer and it's uh, multi-channel. So I do believe that um, COVID, I agree with Ross, COVID has uh, fast forward a lot of trends that were already happening and uh, online adoption has increased a lot. But when we reopened store, uh, the store did really well. So it proves that people still want to have that direct experience. And some people will never be happy with all your lines. Some people will just want to buy offline. Some people want a combination of the two. And uh, what COVID has done, I believe, it has fast forwarded a, a move of market share from legacy players to direct-to-consumer players because online um, during the COVID uh, 12 months, let's, let's call it this way, the brands that were strong online, they pushed a lot and they, they gained awareness, they gained market share. And then uh, once you reopen the stores, if you also have a direct retail presence, the same people that were seeing your ads online, now they can also buy offline again. And so you're much stronger than before. I don't believe retail is dead, as some people say, uh, high street retail. I do believe that COVID had an important impact in uh, highlighting some of the uh, difficulties of retail. For instance, rent was too high before, and uh, COVID has made sure that you know the less strong brand brands went out of business, and so the rent repriced a little bit lower, offering opportunities for um, new niche players to take possessions of stores and hopefully it will be good for the high street um, not having for instance some of the old brands like top shops decreasing retail presence and having some new brands i'm overall optimistic and um, uh, i think it has, it has just accelerated what was happening before yeah Archie, what's it changed in, in Duke and Dexter? What's it changed in, in your own approach to things this past um, year? I think I think my own approach it's it probably made me on reflection, you know, miss the the interaction and discovery of, of new brands. Um, I think previously, uh, it, no, certainly in terms of the conviction of buying, I think previously in a store, be it the brand's own store or a department store, you know, that was where you could have the access to suddenly try something on. And, you know, from a clothing perspective, the fit felt really nice and the quality was immediately apparent. So I think we have completely lost that side of things in terms of the discovery of new brands. From D&D's side of things, it's definitely that interaction. You know, you definitely lose those amazing stories of a type of customer coming in or someone who has, you know, a really vivid story of how they found out about the brand, um, what they're wearing the shoes for, you know, that kind of experience level, which then obviously um, gets pulled through to the rest of the team and the business to understand you know, key customer insights and what's working and what's not. So it's obviously caused a, a massive shift um, from that perspective and an obvious thing which is just it's lost you know you've lost that interaction you've lost that ability there's you know it's only so much you can do through a whatever it is an, an email a live instagram story um as the world decided to go mad on um so yeah i think it's the interaction is the big thing we touched on it there the collapse of the kind of big legacy retailers like Debenhams and the Arcadia Group in some ways. How do you feel about that, Ross? Is that kind of good riddance to old rubbish? Were they um, an outdated model that was clogging up big spaces in high streets, do you think? I think all the big department stores were fundamentally, I mean, there was no reason really to go in them, right, when you think about it. No. Uh, I mean, you would, if somebody gave you, you know, 500 pounds or a thousand pounds to spend in the Debenhams, I think you'd be hard pushed to find something you wanted to spend the money on. Um, Whereas I think Topshop gets a little bit of a hard time. I think that, um, you know, there was a point where I think Topshop was for quite a long period, one of the strongest brands for that sort of like youth culture, especially the big store in 214 in Oxford Street. And, and I actually think that maybe landlords, there's a lesson there for some of those landlords, because I think that, you know, rents were so high. And you look at 2019 and 2018, when people like the Arcadia Group were trying to negotiate those rent levels and, and landlords wouldn't cooperate. And I think that maybe had that have been a little bit lower and there hadn't been these sort of upward only rent reviews every year, 
that money that went on rent could have been invested elsewhere. So look, I think that Topshop had a lot of things going on, but I think fundamentally was a strong brand before this. I think maybe the last 18 to 24 months sort of lost its way. And I just think they need to be a bit more radical, right? Like you look at that building at 214 and originally the basement used to have like a rollerblading disco or something. Yeah. So I think they needed to be bringing more stuff like that to life. But, you know, I remember like the fashion shows and stuff and they always had a, I think compared to River Island and a lot of other high street brands, I think Topshop were actually always further ahead. Yeah. But my view is overall, I think that mass retail, what they were part of, that idea of buy as much as possible, as mm. quickly as possible. I think that was declining and I think it has declined and I don't think that's going to come back. I think you're going to not have another top shop. I think what you will have is you'll have hundreds of much smaller brands doing well that are probably more independent, that are more direct to consumer. And you're seeing that by the way that people are driven by Instagram. You're seeing that by the way that people are driven by stores and these local shops. Yeah. And I think they have a real following of what's, you know, the place that represents you and what you believe in and who's behind it. Whereas I think that places like Topshop became just about what can you buy. Um, but I think that was an industry thing rather than one of those specific brands. Has there been a move away or will there be a move away from the kind of trophy slots like Oxford Street, like that big slot um, that Topshop had to more suburban or I don't know, more kind of individual areas around London, do you think? Yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, we were seeing that before COVID in New York. We were seeing that Fifth Avenue and the same with London, with Oxford Street and around those areas, we've seen a massive decline and a massive increase in places like Hackney and Peckham or in New York, uh, Bushwick and, and places like that, or, or the Lower East, you know, every cool brand I know, whether it was Supreme when we were working with them or, or different brands, they were looking at Daily Paper, people like that were all looking at the Lower East side. Um, they weren't looking at their flagship being in the center of town. I, I, I think that it's about where are people hanging out? Who are your customer? Where do they have dinner? Where do they have lunch? What's their day out? And I don't think that day out was going to those places anymore. No. However, what is exciting, back to, to some Lucas' point with the, with the retail prices and, and rent prices, is that you look at some of those buildings and they're phenomenal. And I, I think about somewhere like the Strand at the moment. You know, The Strand is absolute middle of nowhere, boring as hell, and sort of tumbleweed zone. And then you've got Soho House that just opened up 180 and you've got the store and you've got Jefferson Hack who's been over the last couple of years doing all those exhibitions in 180. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, you go, bloody hell, this street is five minute walk from Clerkenwell, five minute walk from Soho, the middle of town, and every building is spectacular and it's the most beautiful street. And they've taken on a huge building and they've done something better than they've done anywhere else. And suddenly it, it brings people. And I think that you've got these beautiful buildings around Regent Street and Oxford Street that are huge. And you look at some of these buildings, you go, I don't know who's going to take them. Yeah. So unless they're turning them into apartments or into offices, which I, again, don't think is going to happen right now, then I think that hopefully you're going to get people taking over these buildings and doing really spectacular different things. You know, we just had someone take a building, an old department store in New York, and turn it into a tennis club. And every floor has got multiple tennis courts that you can book and all wow. the way. And it's like an urban tennis court and it's awesome. And then you look at, you know, when you think about some of the department stores of the past, you look at Selfridges and when the first plane went over the channel, he took it apart within weeks and had the plane rebuilt in the middle of Selfridges. So they were really showing people the future. It wasn't just about consumption. And I think that you've got these beautiful, huge stages and what we need now is showmen, real creatives to take them over and create amazing things. And if that happens, then yeah, Oxford Street, Regent Street will thrive. But right now, what have you got? Debenham's House of Fraser, John Lewis, Topshop. I mean, other than maybe H&M or Primark, everything there is essentially a ghost town. Yeah. Um, so they've got to do something quite radical. And I think their, their announcement at the moment is they've planted trees down the street, which is nice. But I don't think that's going to um, bring the crowd. Hopefully not. Luca, how, how do you think um, if you were to open new stores next year, say, how do you think you might change A, the place you look for them and B, the way they, they look and feel? Before COVID, we had planned to open many stores in 2020. Of course, we stopped that for a year, but now we will start that again. Uh, again, my fundamental long-term long strategy has not changed. 
We want to have a big proportion of revenue coming from online, but also a part coming from offline. And uh, we open stores where we follow line sales. So mm. in geographies where we become big enough online, we, then we follow with a store offline. And yeah. also we think about what are the cities that our customers tend to go traveling or for business reasons on a regular basis. Uh, I'll give you some examples. So of course, now we have London, New York. Uh, we're opening Milan. Of course, we're in Italian so a store in Milan is important, but uh, Munich is next on the list because Germany is our third market online and uh, yeah. Munich is our first city in Germany and then also drive a lot of tourist footfall. So in terms of how we pick location, we haven't really changed that, uh, the strategy. It's the same as before. And we still believe it's important in those locations to have, like in New York, we have a very big space and in a very nice um, street. And I think it's important for brand awareness to have uh, that sort of uh, yeah. impact. So uh, having learned from the stores we have, we will go for bigger spaces in the future uh, rather than smaller because in a bigger space, you can show much better. Uh, first of all, you can show better your collection and you can show better, you can give an experience to the customer. In New York, we have probably uh, 40 square meters, which is just a bar mm. uh, in the store. So, um, wow. And, and, and we couldn't do that in our smaller store in, uh, in Stockholm, for instance. We, we, we have a small uh, lounge area, we have a small bar, but it's not as big as New York. Yeah. Um, and also we try to give an experience to the customers in the weekend. We have like live music. We had people, uh, you know, fixing items, for instance, um, live uh, repairs. We have um, aperitivo um, every nice. Saturday afternoon. So we try to give other reasons to come back. And, and then there are customers that, have always been offline customers and then they enjoy going back to the store because they know they personally know the store manager or the uh, sales associates and therefore they're enjoying every that that that, that saturday chat uh sometimes customers don't go to the store because they want to buy they just want to say hi we yeah. had when, when we reopened uh, um london stores after these four months lockdown we had so many people that came back just to say hi you know yeah um, and some people didn't buy online in the four months lockdown because they wanted to save that purchase opportunity for where when store reopened. So I think overall to answer your question, where we open, in which cities we open store hasn't changed. Uh, we still believe you need probably the type of stores will be bigger to give more of a, a experience element. And um, yeah, we do we do believe it's very important to give to our customers the possibility to see the brand offline. Yeah. Uh, there are markets where we know we could do much better if we also had a retail presence. Do you have a Luca Faloni Negroni at your bar? I have to ask. <laughs> if you don't, you've missed a trick. We do have Negroni, but it's not... Uh, you need to brand it. It needs a Luca twist. <laughs> and what about you, Archie? What, what kind of, are there any left field locations that you're, you're looking at or you might venture into? Yeah, if, if, looking at new spaces, I, I definitely think it's that fast forward culture of trying to bring stores up to speed with what everyone used to talk about um, and what I mean by that is over the last couple of years obviously there's been a lot of talk and Ross has obviously led the way on this about brands coming into spaces and making it their own and doing something different and I think a lot of that has been sort of meant with full intention but has ended up being quite gimmicky in how it's been done uh, you know certainly from bigger brands actually rather than smaller ones where they've sort of tried to make an experience in store that actually probably deep down they know isn't really worth people coming for. Um, and Ross mentioned New York. I think New York is at the, the forefront. I don't think you need necessarily gimmicky stuff to come and see or bite. You just need that community feel. And New York, I think, is just the absolute pinnacle of it where, you know, I know from friends and colleagues that live over there, they will go out shopping on the basis that, yeah, of course, they're going to go and look at product and brands and, and clothes and, and all sorts. But they're also going because they're genuinely going to meet friends in stores, which I still think in, in London is is a completely novel um, factor, this idea of going and meeting and actually having a coffee in a store and hanging around and that and that being part of your day. So I think for us, it's definitely that view of can we find those community hubs, you know, like a, a Prince Street or a Bleak Street in, in New York? Can we get those areas where actually they are really going to be places that people generally want to come and spend time? Because if they do spend time there, you know, they interact so much more powerfully with your store, with your brand. Than just an in-out, you know, what's the price? Is there a discount? Is there a sale on? 
um, type experience. So for us, the wherever we look for, for the new stores, it will, it will definitely be with that in mind. Can we find those community centers? Yeah, I guess that comes to, to Ross, what you, you talk about a lot, which is shops as media. And as Archie says, a few times you feel like people tack that on as an afterthought and do something a bit gimmicky. But I wonder who are the people, whether here or on the other side of the pond, that have um, have really pulled that off and, and made something much more than just a retail space? Well, I think it all depends on who your customer is. Like there's certain things that I find a little bit gimmicky or annoying, and then to some audience it works and, and vice versa. I think to me, though, I think it's all about at the heart of the customer and to Archie's point, I think it's about how do you create something that's authentic? And I think often what big brands do is, you know, they stick a load of screens up or they do something that's about a new experience. Naturally, they forget why are people going there. And I think that there's a few fundamentals right now which retail's pushing back on and why I am very, very bullish on retail coming out of this pandemic. And the first is that as we become more technological, as, as it becomes more and more part of our lives, in a way, technology starts to disappear, right? It's quite interesting that when I think about online shopping back in the day, um, I would sit down at my laptop. Whereas now, you know, not only is retail massively online, but appear here. So most of our shops are rented on mobile. So people are literally renting shops for you wow. know, thousands and thousands of pounds on their mobile phone while they're out and about. So they're definitely buying jeans on a mobile. And where do you sit on your mobile? Yeah, maybe it's in bed in the morning or in the evening, but most of the time it's when you're out and about. So actually e-commerce is everywhere now. And I think that what that trend means is that we, we are shopping and we're transacting as we're going. And actually the transaction point is the thing that's really disappearing. So the shop is no longer about the transaction. The shop is about the place that you discover and all that stuff that we speak about. But fundamentally, I think it's where you find a brand where you go, this feels like something. Like, you know, I feel like this connects to me. The quality is good. The story behind it's good. And often these are the, to, to Archie's point around community, these are my people. And I think that, you know, when you look at Kith is a great example. I think they've done a phenomenal job, but you go to their stores in New York and places. And, and now, you know, as much as I love the product, I feel a little bit old for Kith. Kith is much younger, you know, very young people, late teenage, early twenties, and they're hanging out and they look cool and interesting and into all that stuff. And then you go to Amelie Dor around the corner in New York and they've got a beautiful cafe and the crowd's a little bit older uh, and everyone sat there having a coffee, sat outside the front on the big benches, having a quick meeting, doing what they need to do. And when you walk in, what makes, frankly, the pants or the jeans or you know a jumper have this added value to it is because I'm walking in going, you know, are these my people? Is this where I belong? Yeah. Um, these people are cool. And I think that what we forget is that we have more stuff than we need, right? Frankly. So when you do buy something, and, and I think people are going to buy less, but when they buy something, it's about buying it from something that matters, something that has a story, something that means something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you look at one of the most popular brands now on Mr. Paul and on a lot of these sites, Saturday Surf. And, you know, they were really like the little coffee shop in New York that was sort of had a few jackets and, and, and stuff. And now they've created this beautiful brand by basically opening up stunningly designed coffee shops. And, and someone goes, well, look, you know, it's no longer about surfing. It's about actually these places that they create where people want to hang out. So my point is that the shop is no longer about the transaction. And as we become more technologically obsessed, I think we actually want the opposite. Mm. We want to go and spend time without our phones. And, and I remember the, the family that used to own Westfield, I know quite well, and I took them to Broadway Market in Hackney. And the owner who had just sold Westfield couldn't believe that everyone in Broadway Market was in their 20s, but he couldn't see anyone on their mobile phone. People sat outside chatting, having a glass of wine, going in the bookshop, queuing outside the bakers, and no one was on a mobile. And he was like, what the hell's going on here? And I think that actually those people, yes, they're still on TikTok, they're still doing all that stuff, but there is a moment where they're like, now I'm with my friends, and actually we're not going to be on their phones. And I'm personally doing that more at dinners than before, right? I now put my phone away and I, it's a conscious effort. And the second thing around this is around globalization. As we become more and more global, as we travel more, as our media, as the things we watch, Netflix, everything, it's global shows. Are, what we actually do is we have this sort of opposite effect where we become hyper-local. So people are now obsessed with their little street 
in Peckham or obsessed with their little street in Hackney or in Leighton or whatever, or in Deptford or, or all these little places I'm hearing about now all the time from friends because they hang out in that one little street. And that was before COVID, it's even more to an extreme. And it's because as we become more global, you want that hyper-local identity. Yeah. So I think there are these trends that happen that feed into retail. And for the retailer, I think it's about tapping into that and going, well, actually, are people going to want somewhere to belong more yeah. in this new world or less? And that comes down, I suppose, to, as you say, the people in the shop and the authenticity and whether you feel a part of that. Luca, obviously your brand has your name on it and it's in a way it's kind of you and your personality distilled, I suppose you might say. But if you're not there to um, to greet the people, how do you kind of educate your managers and the people on the shop floor and make sure that they're um, building that atmosphere and, and kind of telling the story in the right way? Is there a Luca Filoni crash course? <laughs> of course, we have trainings around uh, what we are as a brand and particularly about the craftsmanships and mm. about the products. And I really, you know, I, I tell my people that the, the most important thing is that they explain the customer about the product, they teach uh, about the craftsmanship and about the details. I don't want uh, them to sell a product, they need to explain a product. And then the customer will, uh, le- will learn and make their own decision. Yeah, so, so, so we, we try to make sure that, the, um, that our sales force passes the message of a brand. I guess we've been talking for years about this trend that people are going to buy less things, but they're going to buy better or things that are more closely aligned with their values. It seems like in the last year, that promise has actually maybe become reality. Archie, have you noticed people as the, the things they buy or the, or the way they treat purchases changing? Not just the way they shop, but the actual kind of the products themselves. Yeah, I think um, I think the, <laughs> the the queues outside Primark on the day of opening would, would still say otherwise. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, look, I do. I think I think people are becoming more conscious. I think we we're still in a transition phase, so there's still a you know huge amount of skepticism around brands, as I think there should be around the, the clarity of you know what is it that you're doing that's sustainable or environmentally friendly you know what is that rather than just a, a slap word you know so I, I still think there's a, a massive education piece from you know both from brands and consumers and brands um being more transparent and more honest um so i i think to that extent there is still a yeah a full transition of people going from look i really like to buy into sustainable things and i really want to buy better and i really don't want to you know, I know I've already got too much stuff, but the actual conviction to get people doing that, I think we're still a, a bit of a way off. You know, I still think people are going out. And in reality, if they get into a shop and actually, well, something's on sale or actually those jeans are quite cheap, you know what? I'm going to still buy them. So I, I still think we've got a transition um, phase to go through, but definitely we've massively sped things up. I think there's been obviously a lot of education pieces through the pandemic. Um, a lot of brands obviously having to, shift and become more story led which i think is great as i say on the whole so so i think that i think we're, we're certainly now we've definitely escalated that uh, need and uh, um, to do so but i still think there's a way to go to actually getting people to properly think about what they're buying how, you know yeah. do they need it and and so on so let's let's talk about the future i mean i'm interested to hear potentially maybe from use to start with ross what the high street could look like if it fulfills all its potential and it comes back better than ever what are the kind of utopian ideals i imagine some kind of green pedestrian only space with all these different kind of bars restaurants what 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 are we envisaging and is there any kind of examples you can think of that have um that have really led the way there i think the first thing we've got to do is cancel the word retail i think that um in my view it's like we've got to think about vocabulary a little bit so i think that you know, in real estate, there's lots of annoying terms about types of retail, what's hospitality and what's leisure and what's this. And in the end, I think the, the lines are completely blurring, right? You know, someone's very likely to go out and maybe get a, a face gym done, which is like, you know, a facial or a piece of Botox or buy some clothes or go to a beauty store or um, go to a cafe or a shop, you know, and, and the actual beauty store is becoming a cafe and, and vice versa. These things are all amalgamating into one. So I think that in many ways, I think it's about, to me, simplifying it all. And, you know, you've got space where you go to live and you sleep and you've got workspace, which again, with technology, we're realizing we don't have to 
go to the office to work, but actually it's, it's where we go to connect and, and, and meet people. And I think that retail is fundamentally about that. It's about gathering, it's about connecting. And I think that what's been really interesting to me this last 12 months, back to your original point, is that we were suddenly in a world where because of technology, yes, we could buy whatever we needed to buy. We had endless amounts of streaming TV and we had a deadly virus going on outside our houses. Yet everyone that I speak to, the thing they miss the most was human connection. The thing they missed the most was going out to the bar or a pub with yeah. their friends or going to those little stores. And what I think was interesting is we were suddenly in this world where anything we could buy physically was the exact same, right? Like any street in London where, where I was most pandemic, all you could buy was coffee and like a croissant, right? That's all yeah. you could do. And yet certain streets were, were packed. And you go, well, if everything's the same and, you know, is the coffee on that street that different to the coffee on my street? Probably not. But and it's probably not for all these other people. Yet in the end, we all wanted to go to similar places. And I think that goes back to what this is all about and what the future of the street is about. Fundamentally, as humans, we want to connect. We want connection. We want to look at people and watch and discover and share stories and, you know, what these streets are. I think, and I think what we often forget is they're the places that bind and thread our cities together and they trade on connection and they trade on experiences and they trade on diversity. You know, you look at a city and the reason you live in London isn't because of the big art gallery or Buckingham Palace. It's because of the other 99%, all these little places. So I think that we've had a realisation of that. I think that you see the cues outside the butchers and the bakers when people could buy that stuff from Sainsbury's or Tesco's. Yeah. So my view going forward is that retail isn't about selling, it's about connecting. Streets are about anyone being able to participate. And I think hopefully what you're going to see is this new breed of entrepreneurs and stuff doing things and making things and using their hands. And a lot of friends I speak to at work are bored of their jobs. They're finding them transactional. They, they're sort of questioning what they want to do with their lives. And a lot of people have gone from this idea of how it's all about earning as much money as quickly as possible to it's about doing something far more meaningful that they enjoy where, you know, their mental health's in check and they get up in the morning feeling fulfilled. And often those things are much more local. They're about doing things, making things. And I think that hopefully we're going to see more of that. So I don't know what the future of the street looks like, but I think that to get that future, we need more accessibility. We need to reduce the friction so that more people can have ideas, more people can participate. And the best streets I see are where there's a high propensity of independent stores and unique things going on. And whether you're in Brighton or whether you're in London, whether you're in New York or wherever you are, the busiest streets are always the streets without the brands. Because as humans, we want to go and discover and connect and find what we can't find easily online. And interestingly, you know, Amazon, it's about the search bar, right? And most of the internet is about what you know. The only place really is Instagram where you might discover stuff, but often that's about stuff that an algorithm has told you you might like or who you follow. Yeah. So I actually think that the way for a small, interesting brand, the way, way for someone to change someone's idea or you know, how you believe in something or whatever it is, it is going to come down to the streets. And, and, and I think that if we can have more people bringing their ideas to life and doing that, we'll have really thriving cities. So let's let's talk about money then, which you guys have been much better versed in this financial language than me. But I remember in March, there was a lot of talk after Rishi's budget about this idea of business rates, which have often been seen as archaic, but now seen particularly in need of reform. I wonder as business owners, Luca and Archie, who, who rent retail space, what are your views on, on the way that businesses are taxed in this country? And do you think that needs to be changed in some way? Well, when you talk about business rates, the UK is pretty much the, the only country uh, in the developed world that has um, that sort of tax system for retailers, uh, which effectively adds uh, a very high fixed cost of the rent, not yeah. linked to the actual revenue um, of, a, of a specific uh, retailer. And uh, that's re- really bad because it makes it even more difficult to have those locations sustainable. And when I'm before I told you that um, I believe um, one key problem of, reta- of retail wasn't the fact that people want to buy online. It was um, uh, the fact that uh, the rent was too high 
and therefore, mm -hmm. as, as Ross was saying, it was more difficult for the independent small uh, tenants to afford spaces because they don't have maybe the initial brand awareness that a Pret a Manger could have and therefore generate uh, high revenue to pay all those costs. So uh, I think, first of all, it was good that the UK government uh, canceled those rates during the pandemic because otherwise it would have been a disaster. Uh, but it's important that they have taxes more linked to revenue rather than uh, fixed cost. And also, uh, there, there are talks now about the online taxes uh, uh, that might be introduced. Uh, I think, again, online, which is seen as a kind of a different channel that doesn't pay the rent, etc., has completely different costs. For instance, you have a lot of operation costs, shippings, returns, exchanges. So it would be also unfair to tax them more. Uh, right. and, and often and, and to generate sales online, you have to, you know, maybe you don't have the rent, but you have to pay a lot of market, digital marketing costs. So again, it's not that it's that much more profitable than the retail side. So tax-wise, the government is to give incentive to, to small entrepreneurs, small businesses, independent brands or independent retailers of any source to start a business, which is very expensive um, and, and risky if you have those high taxes. Archie, what do you, how, how, how do you feel about... Yeah, I, I think exactly what Lucas said. I think, um, you know, if I think back to when we first opened our first store in Covent Garden in 2016, it, it was this huge deal that we were opening a store. You know, obviously there is a very, very um, uh, sort of emotional connection with opening something physical, right? You, you know, it, it's, 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 a, it's a real... Um, tangible thing that you can see, live and breathe. But the reason it was such a big deal was because, you know, you were going to take on this enormous cost and it was going to have, you know, business rates attached and you know, all service charges and all this setup cost. And obviously, you know, with the likes of what Ross and Appear here have done, it's, it's tried to eliminate that. It shouldn't be this crazy, massive, monstrously complicated, stressful factor to, to add. And I think that's exactly what the fundamental problem with business rates it's, it's it, you know they're not dynamic as Lucas says they're not um, charged reflective of a business's size of you know sales through that store that they're, they're just archaic in that sense so I think this idea with with retail um, and for want of a better word as, as Ross says you know uh, this idea of opening a store it shouldn't have come with this huge complication or stress factor of you know oh my god I've got to think about all this stuff in reality of course there's you know there's more to it um, in, in relation to you know designing the store and building it out, but that's where the time and almost the stress should be spent, right? Not on this idea of oh my god, I'm going to be signed in for this long, and business rates are horribly expensive, and and, and if I don't meet this sales target, I'm you know I'm going to be screwed. So I, I just think it's that dynamic element that has to change. It has to be more reflective of a business's size. You know, maybe we look at incentivizing a trial period. You know, that's what gets brands in to spaces is can they can they do it and can they give it a, a, a real test without having to be overly worried about all of the financials and costs that come with it ross do you think that that transformation is likely to happen soon yeah no, i think it's got to happen i think that what's the point of having business rate from the government perspective what's the point of having business rates if, if there's nothing to tax mm. if all the stores disappear then business rates would be eliminated anyway my view is that I, I don't think that it's even about re-looking really at business rates. I think you've got to fundamentally scrap it. And the only way it should exist is if you're charging business rates for online businesses. And then, you know, to the point Archie made about size, it should be probably based on revenue because you've got these huge companies and sales revenue because you've got these huge companies like Amazon that are paying fractions of their tax because of offshore banking. And, and, you, and, and you look at loopholes and you look at, um, where they're taking that money. You've got to remember it, companies like Amazon, a lot of big successful technology companies that are in retail, they haven't added to the economy. What they're doing is they're taking something out. So they are basically getting rid of the small local store or the local supermarket, whatever that might've been and replacing it online. That's great sometimes, right? Because Amazon's great, hugely efficient for certain products uh, and it comes to your door and it's all magic. But I'm fine with disruption, but on the basis that you put back in what you took out. And I think the problem is, is if you're taking out businesses that played by the rules, that played their tax and paid their business rates and paid their employees fairly, and you're replacing it with somebody who's taking that spend out of the local community and let alone paying the money back into the local community, you're lucky if they're paying it back into the country. 
I think you face some of the big fundamental political issues that we're facing today, which is where you've got huge wealth inequality and you've got people questioning if capitalism makes sense. So I think that what we've got to do is have a level playing field. I think that online businesses have to be taxed the same way a physical business is. And at the end of the day, business rates are there to pay fundamentally for people to do business in the area. Uh, and when you look at somewhere like Britain, right, we've got insane adoption to e-commerce, way higher than anywhere else. And all of that's because of you know, everything from the infrastructure to the way it's built, you know, the, the roads that get the delivery trucks here, the way that it's just easy. And everyone benefits from that and everyone should contribute. And, you know, I think we need to remember that the streets have far more to our happiness, as we just spoke about, that we've realised over the last 12 months. They're not just places that are about transactions. Um, so, yeah, the government's got to question it. They've got to scrap it, in my opinion. And if they keep it, it's got to be a level, play, level playing field, which involves all businesses, not just small retail businesses. Oh, I guess that that's what people like to call the kind of Amazon tax, a windfall. Is that is that what you have in mind? Yeah, or, or you know, I, I mean, I think that there's different questions with online players and making them pay their fair share of tax for the, for, to start. Yeah. But I think with business rates, I think that needs to be business rates should be anyone in the area that's doing business if you are going to keep it if we need business rates to support local government and support local infrastructure and governments they're questioning how they that they're going to have a hole if they don't have this then i think it should be everyone contributing to make the roads and everything else in that area and the local councils work it shouldn't be all of that pressure on these small retailers and these local businesses that doesn't to me make any sense and it certainly doesn't make sense when these stores are fantastic for the local community. You know, 70, 80p of every pound spent in a local store goes directly back into that local area. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it feels to me like um, it, the whole thing is archaic, needs to be scrapped. And as, and as Lucas said, it, it doesn't exist in Paris, for example, and other cities. No. So why should it exist here in the UK? It's been interesting to talk about the government's response to the pandemic and people come at this from all angles. It feels like retail may have been one of the losers in certain certain ways because for hospitality, for example, there was, of course, the eat out to help out, which was controversial in its own way. Do you think there are any kind of schemes like that, really innovative, slightly left field, slightly left wing, maybe schemes that um, that could help shops like you, Luca, or you, Archie? Well, in general, I don't believe too much in government intervention in, in the uh, economy. So now that things are reopened again and now that, uh, you know, businesses have, have been helped during the, um, the last 12 months with uh, furlough schemes or cancellation of business rates, the grants could have been, you know, for some of the retail businesses that have been closed for, for a long time could have been higher, but it was better than nothing. Now that the businesses have been helped, I, I believe that um, you should leave back the economy to work in, in yeah. natural ways. So brands have to make an effort, or brands or any retailer have to make an effort to create a better experience so to attract the customers and be better than their neighbors and so, so that they, they, they get a higher shares of the high street revenue. And uh, as a consequence, the customers will benefit because they'll get a better service, et cetera. Look, those schemes like Itao to help out were great to get things restarted, but long-term, uh, I think you need more structure. If, if the government wants to do something for the high street, it needs to do more structural reforms uh, on business rates and also on power of landlords. Like that, we haven't talked much about the rental agreements. Those contracts tend to be very long. And yeah. as Archie was saying, when a small new brands want to start their first store, it's a big thing because they lock you in for, you have to sign a 10 year lease and you have to pay stamp duty. And uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and by the way, you might not know us, but our first pop-up was before we started at full-time stores. Our first pop-up happened with um, appears here. So yes. again, it was an example of I was scared about the offline uh, investments, and uh, and I wasn't sure about it, but it came in a flexible way. So we did it, and it worked. And then we were more confident going into long-term leases. But the point is, uh, not only the rates have to be adjusted, but also Landlords tend to have too much power and they create this uh, uh, scarcity, fake scarcity element on the high street because some landlords control entire streets. Yeah. Like you, if, if you look at Kings Road or if you look at uh, Marylebone High Street, if you look at, at many nice areas of London where a brand would want to have a store, 
that street is controlled by a single landlord and they can keep prices artificially high. They can just not sign leases until they get the right price. But that's not good and not, it's not sustainable for the, for the tenants. Uh, therefore, you have retail uh, rents that are just too, too slow compared to the economic cycle. So, yeah, but going, going back to your point, I don't believe in government intervention too much. I, I, I want uh, brands to compete with each other naturally. And uh, uh, what you've seen in this pandemic, to be honest, was uh, some brands that went bankrupt were brands that were not prepared for the new trends. If you add, for instance, a seasonal collection that you have to throw away at the end of the season if you don't sell, you were into troubles. Uh, if you had a product mix that was too much old school, like if you sold only suits and office shirts, well, some of these brands went, went bankrupt. And in the future, uh, the world is moving to more, towards more of a casual, formal slash casual uh, dressing style. So uh, you need to have a flexible uh, product mix as a brand. Uh, capitalism and works in, in the long term works. That's the truth. And um, it was, it, it, the customer benefits. Well, I think we've got to be careful here. And, and the reason I think we've got to be careful with this is that I agree fundamentally in that, that capitalism and all these things work in the long run. But I also think that we've got to look at cause and effect. And I think on this occasion, government intervention did play a part. Government intervention made it um, illegal for these people to run their stores. Government intervention said for 80% of the year, you've got to be shut. And I think you know that means that you've got businesses as well as you know those that in terms of like the Darwinism of business and those that need to adapt to survive, I agree with. But there are also businesses that were doing incredibly well that due to being shut for 80% of the year will struggle to see this through. And I think that the sad thing for a lot of those businesses, the ones that were doing well pre-pandemic, is they are optimistic for the future. They believe that they can survive. They believe that people will go back to stores, but they need to they need that encouragement um, to get through the next quarter. And we've got to remember we're opening up in what isn't an incredibly successful retail quarter. It, it, it's not a big retail time. So it's not like we're opening up just before Christmas. So these brands, I think, need some kind of stimulus for government. And, you know, we launched a Save the Street campaign at the beginning of the year and we lobbied and pushed government to extend the business rates holiday until at least the end of the year. And they've done that now for 12 months. I think reducing it by something like 60, 70% for that period. But what we were also pushing for and we continue to push for is some kind of eat out to help out for local family run businesses, independent businesses mm -hmm. between now uh, and the end of the summer. Because I think that if you've got something like that that pushes people to go out there and spend locally, it does what we're talking about, where you're not going to spend that money on something you don't like, right? You're going to spend that money on the local store that you do like, that is relevant, that is offering it makes something up. And that's not even going to make up anywhere near to the 80% they lost. And the government's had something like 1.8 billion return to it from big supermarket chains, from rates relief that they um, have already allocated to give those brands. They've got the money there in the treasury that was given back. So my view is that Eat Out to Help Out cost something like half a billion. I think something like that, and, and most of it was returned back to the treasury because of jobs and, mm. and all that, that sort of stuff. So I think mean, if something was there, to encourage retail and independent retail. I think it could be something that not only gives those businesses hope, but helps them get through this next period and also encourages other people to start up. And I think we've got to ask ourselves what sort of society do we want to live in? Because things like furlough were big, broad strokes that everyone got at the beginning of this pandemic. But the truth is that other industries really benefited during COVID. They did well due to COVID. The technology industry, for example, has had record growth, record investment, uh, record stock prices, and yet got hundreds of millions of pounds of match funding from this government right at the beginning. Mm. And then you've got retail that had to shut for 80% that's been massively affected, and not just retail, beauty shops, hairdressers, barbers. And a lot of these people from different backgrounds, there's a lot of diversity. They're often from lower economic households. And these people have had nothing. So my view is we've got to question what sort of society and if government intervened to shut stuff, they should be intervening to open things back up. And if they supported companies in the technology sector, which let's be clear is basically mainly a male industry, certainly males running those businesses from very similar backgrounds, many of which went to the same school as our prime minister, they should be questioning, well, if they got support, then maybe we should be giving it to 
the streets that are made up of huge diversity and huge different individuals. So I think this is about what we believe in as a society as well. And if we want to come out of this being fair or um, unfair. Absolutely. So I wonder if, if I can ask you a kind of trend based question. If you were to start and imagine that Appear Here and D&D and Luca Filoni, the brand, don't exist, if someone was to say, listen, we've got a retail space on this high street, I'll give it to you for free. What would you do? I mean, I'm using retail space again there, Ross. I'm breaking the rule. But what would you do with it if you could start in 2021 a new brand from scratch? What would that place look like? I I don't know if there are basically any kind of trends you think are going to be big in the way people like to to spend their time and and their money. I mean, we've, we've already spoken about it but i think that the first thing to do for me would be to look at how can you make sure that the community that you're in or the community that you're building you know it's a completely sort of new up-and-coming location how can you bring the community to the store not how can you sell stuff or how you know how much product can you necessarily get out how can you bring the community to the store to fundamentally continue to you know keep the store's life going that, that for me would be the, the absolute core. I, I, I wouldn't worry and stress about the necessity of finding the perfect space or the perfect high street at the moment um, as, as it is. I would, I'd, I'd work on the community side of things. That's what I think D&D, you know, with Common Garden found really difficult. We went into a space in, in 2016 that was a great location um, in terms of being a, a buzzy street, um, a buzzy neighbourhood to be in, and we benefited from that. But once the community moved... Our Covent Garden store struggled a lot. You know, the the the, the space there is very um, tourist driven. So yes. certainly, you know, once we started to lose that due to lockdown and um, and pre lockdown um, issues, we yeah we had a fundamental challenge of trying to rebuild that. So for me, I think it would be looking at how can you build a, a community in a space before worrying about the sales and and so on because that will all follow. Anyone else want to jump in on that one? Yeah, so the Maribyrnong Estate, for instance, that owns one of the streets where I have a store regularly asked me if I have any brands to suggest that they should yeah. pitch the space. And look, a problem we have had before was, as I said already, that rents was too high. So as a consequence, the high street was populated by a lot of the same businesses that could afford the rent. So you had like a lot of banks, you had a lot of pret manger and Cafe Costa, and you have all these businesses that you know that could afford the rent, but then you didn't have any more uh, some of the stores that could create the community or some of the stores that actually the residents in the area would need to have a happy life. And um, if you look, for instance, at some of the businesses that, that were really successful in the last, um, I live in Notting Hill, right? There is this new place called the Notting Hill Fish Fish Shop. Launched on a pier here. <laughs> <laughs> Just FYI. But look, that, Great. That's Classical example of a place that maybe for a small entrepreneur is a risk to start something like that. But then the local went literally nuts about it and they all get the fish there. Sometimes they have a DJ on the weekend. So <laughs> that created the community. And then the same thing, like if you look at Marylebone High Street, uh, there is a very nice small bakery around the corner. Like you need places like a, a butcher, for instance, even if he cannot afford a rent. If, if a landlord owns an entire street, it's in a very privileged position to decide what the experience in the entire street looks like. Because if you talk to me as a brand, yeah, I can decide what the experience in my stores look like. But you need an overall mix of uh, needs covered and mix of um, community needs as well. So as a resident, you need, need, the, need different things that a business traveler might need, okay? And, and so some of those small niche business might not be able to sustain the rent, but the landlord of an entire street must, must make a very uh, rational decision that some businesses should pay a lower rent, but they're actually bringing something positive, which is footfall. They, they might bring, you know, footfall that uh, people go specifically to buy the uh, Notting Hill uh, fish shops. And in that process, they might buy from businesses in the same block. Well, they're also doing very well. I mean, it's unbelievable when you look at how successful a fish shop can be. But I think that, Luke, to your point, I think one thing that's really interesting there and and I think needs to be thought about is the idea of, you know, when you think about streets, fundamentally, they're places where people want to gather, they're places that people want to connect. There are all these things we've said, they're places where people want to belong. And I think because of all those things, they're places where, as humans, we get inspired and, and all of these things. I think fundamentally, culture, 
comes from our streets. It always has done. And you think about the King's Road back in the day and whether it was, you know, the Rolling Stones or Vivian Westwood or the Sex Pistols or Mary Quant with the mini dress. All of these insane things came off of one little tiny street that didn't just affect culture in the country, but had a rippling effect around the world. And you're seeing that with streetwear culture and all different things. And, and I think that it's always come from the streets fundamentally. And I think that there's a bigger issue right now, which is that what you've got with a lot of these big landlords uh, and the sort of where retail since really the late 80s made a lot of money. Mm. You know, it became all about mass retail, huge rents. It really wasn't that in the past. What you've actually got is you've got very few individuals that are taking complete control. So what Luke was talking about is in each of those estates that he just mentioned that own a lot of big pieces of retail, there is one individual often making the decision of who all the retailers are. You look at something like um, Cold Drops Yard, and I think it's a beautiful building. And I think, you know, Thomas Heberwitz, a good friend of mine, he designed that incredibly well. But you look at it and you look at the shops that went in, and some of them are beautiful, but it's all the same. And it's just got such a similar vibe. And it's just, and there's no, and who's it for? I don't really know. Whereas actually, could each corner have been for a different type of group? And what I would have done is said that no one individual is good enough to dictate everything, right? Mm. You know, even if you work for Vogue, there is a beauty editor and another editor and another editor. And there are contributors who don't work for Vogue who they get involved and, and give suggestions. And I think that what we really need, and to answer your original question, Joe, is if I was given a shot, if it was a, especially if it was a big one, I would probably be going, who are the people that are so relevant, so interesting, who should dictate what goes in on this book? Who are going to find things that I would never know about? So who is the person who just knows, who's the coolest mum that I know who's just had a baby, who's going to go and create and pick all the coolest little independent brands for maternity and for kids? Who's the coolest streetwear guy that I know who is obsessed with the brand before people even follow it properly on Instagram, who can create that floor so that when I go in there, I'm learning about brands I don't know. Now, I think Selfridges does a phenomenal job um, of some of their curation. And, and But a lot of the streetwear I know, but they're still doing a fantastic job there. But I would love to go into a store where I'm like, I don't know who that brand is yet. And I'm hearing about it for the first time. So I think it's about democratizing yourself and going, who are the voices that can decide and can pick all those things? Because what's really interesting is you mentioned sort of Notting Hill Fish Shop and, and I think about different areas of London where my favorite stuff is. And there's a lot of words that go around in real estate like curation um, and placemaking. And actually often the best examples of it are where no one individual took control. So in Soho, for example, there's a one little pocket where Byredo is, and there used to be Our Legacy, and there's a couple of really great stores. And that one corner is the only corner, really, in central Soho that isn't owned by one landlord. It's got about eight landlords. So they all had an opinion, and fundamentally, good attracts good, right? And I think the same happens when you think about Broadway Market. It's loads of little landlords. I think there's only one landlord on that street that owns two shops. And the amazing little bakery opens, amazing coffee shop, and the butcher, and all these other good things are attracted by that. So I think actually, sometimes I think we overcomplicate this. And I think that fundamentally, the best streets are where there are more voices, not only contributing and participating, but deciding. Mm -hmm. And actually, when you think about it, that's when you have the best of anything. So my view is that we probably, to Luke's point, need to think about there being a little bit less control and and also people in real estate having a little bit more humility to say actually let's bring in some great individuals who can help us decide that street and not let it all be whoever they are and i think to me if i had a building i'd be going who are the best editors and curators who aren't necessarily magazine editors but are just cool people maybe they've got a great following on Instagram who are just interesting who get what the fuck's going on and bring them in and let them decide and I think that would create the type of place which I would be. And they'll bring their group as well, their community. Well, I look forward to that. Guys, thanks so, so much for joining us. It's been wonderful and very, very informative. Cheers, guys. Great to speak. Great to see you, Archie. See you soon, Luca. See I hope to see you all in the real world. Yeah, let's do that. Be fun. Filoni Negronis. <laughs>
Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more. Does, does the fish company call it call the DJ Nights Fishcotech as well? <laughs> wow, you got the podcast finished a while ago when you said thank you. <laughs> I did, did, did. Okay, good. <laughs> this is the small talk. That, small that talk. should have gone in, though. That should have gone in. We might, might cut it in. <laughs>